And here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, that's the way they started the movie Beyond Thunderdome. I highly recommend that you don't see it. But this is the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And we are a show that unites mental health and comedy. We unite mental health as a practice, that mental health is a practice, not just a topic, an actual practice, something that you do, something that you do in moments at all kinds of times in your life, having to do with awareness, having to do with how you relate to your thoughts and feelings. This is all part of mental health. A lot of conversation about mental health, not enough practice. So we decided to do something. When I say we, I'm talking about my partner, a terrific uh, child and family therapist with a great organization called ConnectedParenting.com. That's Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer joining us in just a minute. And it is President's Day. I wanted to do just a few things. I'm going to do a little bit of thing on President's Day, a little bit of thing on emotional shout outs. And I also thought that we could talk today a little bit about memory, about childhood memory, not memory, the song from Cats, although I could do that too if you want, but memories. And can you repair childhood memories? Is there a way to work with them? And that comes up for me because our special guest today is a a terrific writer. She's an award-winning writer. But if you're a comedian, if if you're a comic and you know anything at all, you know that that our guest really created one of the landmark shows, co-created one of the landmark shows in, in comedy and in late night. And that's the uh, late night with David Letterman and also the David Letterman morning show. And that's Meryl Marco. Now, Meryl is going to join us shortly. And we're going to talk to her about an amazing graphic novel that she wrote called We Saw Scenery. It is unlike anything I've ever really looked at before. And it's spectacular because it combines what things does it combine? Combines art. It combines art with great writing, with comedy, with neuroscience, and with personal development. If you can write something that has those elements to it, I'm that's number one in my book. Number one. So we're going to talk about that. But memory. Can we talk a little bit about memory? So anyway, a little digression though. Uh, it's President's Day. They are now working on a presidential competency test. This is sort of like a DMV license test. It's not perfected, obviously, because I didn't have more time to write it. But it is a test. It combines sort of a little bit of mental health, a little bit of common sense, and is related to some of the previous years that we've been suffering here in this country. Here's the President's Day competency test. A bubbling feeling inside your body means A, an emotion is occurring, B, America is the greatest, or C, too many Diet Cokes. When your emotions are going uphill or downhill, you turn your attention to A, the problem, B, the solution, C, your hotels and stakes. The white zone is for A, everyone, B, unloading blame, or C, white power. That's pretty good. When it comes to Homeland Security, a yellow light means A, America's safe and huge. B, proceed with caution. Or C, we have some bad hombres coming in. Finally, when dealing with a national health crisis, you should A, tell the truth, B, avoid the subjects, 
C, divert attention by claiming election fraud, or, or D, worship dictators. I like none of those, but I did share them anyway. Now, I want to do a few emotional shout outs, and it's all related to childhood. We're going to talk a little bit about childhood, a little about memory today. If you were on the depression drill team, welcome. If you were in the meth club in high school, welcome. If your family had a no living room, welcome. If there were more TVs in your house than Best Buy, welcome. If the four basic food groups during your childhood were brown sugar cinnamon Pop-Tarts, Count Chocula cereal, Fiddle Fowl, Yodel, Ring Dings, and Wise Barbecue potato chips, welcome. If a closed bathroom door in your family meant absolutely nothing, welcome. If every family member's feelings were based on how your mother felt, welcome. If you were responsible for other people's happiness, welcome. If your local kid's morning show was hosted by a character with serious mental issues, welcome. If you ran home from school to watch Dark Shadows and held seances with kids in your neighborhood, welcome. And if you stayed home on Saturday night to watch All in the Family, MASH, The Mary Tyler Moore Show, Bob Newhart, and Carol Burnett, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I want to bring in our friend from the North and the South, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, memory, how, mm-hmm. how do we do, can we repair childhood memories? Is that, is that possible and is it important in some way? You know what, you, th- there is a way to kind of scaffold and rewrite the memory and rewrite your body's experience to it. So let me tell you a little bit about memory first, because memory is really interesting. Pe- people think that memory is this like intact thing like an event happens or you have a memory of something that happened in your childhood or some event that just happened the other day and that it's perfectly filed away in a little filing cabinet and you pull it out and you examine it and it's and it's accurate and that's not actually the truth. So what happens is memory is disassembled. So when you're recalling something it's basically split up and put in all kinds of different filing cabinets in your brain. So sight, smell, sound, taste, uh, tactile, it's kind of put everywhere. There's even some science that suggests that it's literally stored outside of the brain in a field or in, in almost like the, the cloud. Um, and then when you remember something, it's reassembled, but it's reassembled with whatever feelings you are feeling at the time that you reassemble it. So what happens is every time you recall a memory, you're altering it. And even the way that we remembered it in the beginning is not exact because we, we, we remember everything in a very sort of intersubjective way th- through our own belief system, whether we were having a good day or a bad day, how we felt about ourselves, what we've been told about ourselves. It's memory. Human memory is very, is very not reliable. And we don't like to think that, but it's true. And that is actually what PTSD is. So when you recall something that's frightening, you're frightened while you're recalling it, you're just added another layer of fear to it and you put it back. And then every time you take it out, you're adding fear to it. And that's what phobias are. That's what PTSD is. So memories are constantly being altered. The other thing you kind of have to know about memory is that the capacity to store long-term memory, so stuff that we can remember over time, isn't actually built in our brain until we're about seven years old. So the kind of hardware that's laid down in the brain isn't, isn't even there until we're about seven. So prior to the age of seven, anything that happened to us that was you know, upsetting, exciting, anything that was sort of intense, we're going to remember it in our, basically our limbic system and in our hippocampus and the part of the brain that actually feels, which means we're going to have a very different sensation with that memory. And those implicit memories or theme songs, as I call them, 
kind of inform how we see ourselves and how we operate through life. That's kind of like some architecture that's laid down very early in our brain. And those are kind of like programs and belief systems that operate for our whole lives. So if you think about it, as adults, we're all kind of walking around with operating systems that, you know, were really sort of put down there when we were seven years old. We're, we're running around with seven-year-old to nine-year-old operating systems hmm. and trying to function as adults. So that, that's kind of, that gives you a little bit of a clue. We have old iPhones in our heads and we need an upgrade. <laughs> we need an upgrade. Yeah, we don't upgrade our memories, right? And we need to, because as we mature and as we change and as we can relook at events through different perspectives, through our, through our frontal lobe, through our adult brain, that's how we can kind of add all, you know, sort of put into different perspective, different memories, and then also knowing that they're not necessarily accurate either. Okay, so accurate thinking, that's not something that we talk about ever, uh, really. Um, there is something called accurate thinking, and it's, it's checking the kind of thinking boxes that people usually get into, like myself. Catastrophic thinking is one of them. Leapfrogging is another one. Jumping to conclusions mm-hmm. is, you know, what I majored in in college. Yeah, making assumptions, yeah. all that stuff, yeah. Okay, Jennifer, is there a skill? So I just had a memory, okay? I had a flash. Mm -hmm. What -hmm. can I do about it? Okay, so first thing I want to say is that, and I I think it was Inez that made this quote, that we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. We need to understand that we see and understand everything through our own filter, right? And in order to do that, you have to be using your frontal lobe, the part of your brain that actually organizes and prioritizes. And so the first thing you do when you feel something is honor it, feel it, know that you feel that way because you care deeply, really kind of anchor into the feeling. Don't run away from it. That's the first thing. And then after you've allowed yourself to feel it, kind of read the disc as I call it, because all, all emotions are information and all memories are information. Then get your frontal lobe going and start to ask yourself some questions. How old was I when I had that memory? Is there another perspective that I could be taking? How many times have I thought that thing or remembered that thing without ever challenging myself, without ever asking myself questions? Because sometimes we just think the same thing so many times over and over and over and over again that we don't even realize that it's been altered. We don't even know that we can alter it. So even just asking yourself some questions about it. And then what I love to do, because you know we talk about imagination all the time on this show. But one of the greatest things you can do is sit down and imagine the whole thing going a different way. Just imagine the whole thing going a different way as if it happened completely differently, exactly the way that you wish that it would have happened. Feel those feelings. Let those feelings resonate through you. Pay attention to how differently your body is responding that to that different neuropsychobiology, those different biochemicals, and then go on with your day. And every time you remember that memory, repeat that. You're not going to erase the memory, but what you're going to do is you're going to be using an entirely different part of your brain to analyze the memory. And you're also going to start to associate a different feeling with recalling that fact. You're not kidding yourself. You're not pretending it didn't happen. You're just using this amazing ability that the human brain has to imagine something going completely differently. So so this is a way to actually kind of reimagine your, your past in a way, mm-hmm. enhance the present and actually live in the feeling of what you want. And the only reason why anybody does anything in this world is because they want something. And so you Mm -hmm. want something and you think you have to wait for it or you can never have it, or there's certain things you have to do to get it. The thing is the the feeling is is always in there. 
the good feeling is always around and available. Yeah. Absolutely. And just so, yeah, recognizing that it's a program, you can also do this in a, in a smaller way when you have a terrible day, when, you know, it's one of those days where everything went wrong, close your eyes at night and rerun the day. Just start at the very beginning and imagine the day going exactly the way that you wanted it to. The, we say this all the time, but the limbic system, the, the part of the brain that feels can't tell the difference between you remembering something, imagining something and actually doing something. You're going to get the biochemical benefits in any, any way you do it. Right, so you're going to actually get some nice chemicals, some good what I call bliss chemicals, flowing just from imagining it a different way. Well, Jennifer, you're going to love this book because it's so good that 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 our guest wrote because she deals with the, she deals with the hippocampus. She is doing mm-hmm. off hippocampus housing. She is doing all <laughs> kinds of stuff with the hippocampus. It's such an interesting graphic novel. She's a, a celebrated writer for many years. And she is a a brilliant comedy writer and worked on some of the greatest shows that have ever been done on TV. And but what I didn't know is I didn't know she's also an art professor and an art student, a celebrate, you know, has worked within the art for many years and, and put together all of these things into one book, this this graphic novel called We Saw Scenery, which is about her childhood based on diaries that she wrote when she was in grade school. And she is none other than Meryl Marco. Meryl, thank you for patiently waiting. How is your hippocampus doing right now? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> why, why not? Um, this book is so interesting to me because it really, you know, some of the things that I love about it, first of all, the art is trem- fantastic, very unique very realistic, very detailed, but also, you know, really interesting colors that evoke so many, so many memories that I had personally. Maybe I grew up in the same family. I don't know. What was it like for you to write this book and how did you put it together? Was it a healing experience for you? Is it something that, that allowed you to access something that you didn't know before? Uh, no, I didn't really feel I needed healing per se. I was, um, because I'm a writer and I like to keep working on things, when I ran upon, I came upon these old uh, childhood diaries, which I knew I had, but I just hadn't seen them in a long time. They were at the bottom of a box of other stuff. I save a lot of stuff. And um, and I thought, well, this will be a funny idea. What I'll do is I'll review them as though they were an early work by a writer and take them seriously as writing, knowing that they were, you know, quasi-literate. And so I thought that's what I was going to do when I sat and I was reading them. And then I started thinking, I was sort of amazed at how I I remembered some of them like they were yesterday. I'm talking now about stuff that was written the end of fourth grade, the beginning of fifth grade, all of fifth grade. And if you'd said to me before I read them, what you do in fifth grade? I would have said, um, I think that was a, that was a year that there I was in uh, girls you know, I wouldn't. I would have had one or two things I I would have come up with. I got glasses that year, but uh, but I wouldn't really have been able to tell you what fifth grade was at all. But what I found when I sat down to read these diaries was that I had written down every single thing that happened to me in fifth grade and sixth grade and seventh grade, and that I remembered about a third of it really well. And then I rem- a lot of it I just um, didn't really remember particularly at all. 
And that that got interesting to me because I was wondering, well, why did I bother saving this memory? But I threw this one out. So I started wanting to see what the kid looked like who was writing all this stuff down. And I thought, well, that might be fun. It would be like a comic strip of somebody from another era talking to you every day about what they just did. And I, so I started drawing them. And once I started drawing them and showing them to friends, they were going, well, that's a book. And then I started saying, well, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of a book, but uh, it's so random. It's just all this random stuff. How is it a book? Like, why does anyone want to read all this random stuff I did when I was in fifth and sixth grade? And then I, so it took a lot of, a couple of years of figuring out how to make a story arc out of my own life, because it was a lot of a million details, but not really a story unless one was superimposed, you know? So I started having to figure out how to superimpose a story on all this random stuff. And it took a while to figure out that was at the, at the same time, I, I was enjoying doing the drawings because I liked the writing. The writing was um, completely not like anything I would do now, because when you're 11 or 10, you just, everything about the way you take something in is just different, you know, it was, and the other thing was, it was a, a fresher, neater take on stuff than it would have been when I, I, I kept diaries my whole life until maybe five, six years ago. When, when I got to my teenagers, diaries became completely different for me. I mean, it was a kind of a, a, a th I didn't really know what you do with a diary when my mother first gave it to me. So I was writing down everything I did every day because that was, seemed to justify it. But when I hit my teenage years, it, and from beyond, especially in my 20s, it's just whining. It's, it was, became like a companion and a place to unload. And so those are not nearly as much fun to read as the ones where I'm telling you what I did every single minute of every single day. So that was what I was working with. It's so interesting. I tell you, what I, what I find interesting, too, is the moments where the adult Meryl sits down with the diary writer as a kid and puts her arm around her and says things to her. Well, the reason I started doing that was when I got to the place, which was early into the diaries, and which I remembered, but I didn't really remember in context, was, was when I was in love with a Nazi. I was <laughs> in fourth through sixth grade, I was in love with this Nazi, and I knew he was, he was literally jubating me, I guess, but I didn't see it that way. I, I just was in love with him, and when I came in, he used to do like Heil Hitler and, oh. and uh, stuff like that, and I was not insulted by it at all. I thought he's paying attention to me. He thinks I'm uh, like a world leader, oh my God. and uh, I just didn't see it as a Jew thing at all, and, um, and it didn't deter my love for him even in the slightest, and so... It's, and, and so that's when I started saying, well, I got, I have to have a talk with this girl. What, what in the hell? I know she's not stupid. Right. It still is amazing to me that I must not have told my parents about it because I mean, they knew I was in love with this guy, but I don't think I told them about the Heil Hitler stuff. I think they would have probably clued me in on it. Oh yeah. They, they would have gone crazy. Yeah. They would have gone insane at that time. And you're in Florida. Yeah. But do you think it's because he paid attention to you? Like, yeah, it was, he was paying attention to me. I was actually, I, I didn't really have self-esteem problems at that point. I was class president. You know, I, self-esteem problems came as I got to be closer to 12, 13 and, uh, and realized I wasn't perfect. But at that point when we, I was kind of confident and I was, I was a good student and I didn't, it was before I had any real, any real sense of how I looked, you know, so I wasn't, 
thinking, gee, he thinks I'm this or I thinks I'm that. I just, we were 11, 10 years old. God only knows whether he even knew what he was doing. Yeah. yeah, he may, he probably, he may not have, or he may, he picked it up from somewhere. It wasn't Hogan's well, heroes. His parents were probably Nazis. I mean, I don't think we right. have his any father was, Today, his father would be a proud boy. Today, they'd uh, be yeah. the proud boy, the proud family today. Well, I would think that he, his father is long dead, and I would think that he's probably storming the Capitol if he <laughs> kept any of this up. The spirit of his father is saying, uh, and, and you, they don't generally, uh, they're not into dating. Like, they're not looking for a companion necessarily. Well, he's that guy with his feet up on Nancy Pelosi's desk is who this this guy was that I was in love with. That's but you know, at that time, he was just a kid. I don't know one thing about him. You know, I was in love with him. That meant I thought he had a cute face. I couldn't tell you anything about him. Oh. Nothing except for that he did that Heil Hitler stuff. Oh, my God. It's just that Heil Hitler stuff that throws it off. Otherwise, it's yeah. very normal. <laughs> Otherwise, I knew nothing. Right. So that was my love affair then. But it, but when I was rereading it, I was thinking, oh, my God, that's so <laughs> painful. How terrible for that kid. And then I realized, that, listen, I was in love and I didn't even know it wasn't being returned. Oh, I thought my. we were going, it was going well. <laughs> and this explains the Jewish love affair with the Nazis. <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, I mean, I, you know, we, we made phony phone calls to him. There was stuff going on you know we i left i left weird notes on his bike and uh and he gave me an autograph he wrote me a very nice autograph it was <laughs> oh my goodness this is so, you know. this is this is childhood well i was just gonna say that like kids are kids are so weird like and it's it's wonderful but they're weird they don't necessarily see things through adult eyes and in no way am i saying it's okay to date a nazi but <laughs> I wasn't even dating him. I was the entirety of the relationship had to do with, you know, a, a second or two in class. Right. Exactly. But to, the, what's so interesting is that your perspective was not that it was awful. He, 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 he sees me. Yeah. That was it right? for me. Yeah. <laughs> wow. He, he makes a fuss when I come in. It's also true for a lot of kids. I mean, obviously, this is a very, you know, interesting subject, but often kids will go through things and they'll see it just that way. And it's the parents that will say, oh my gosh, like that's terrible. Or you shouldn't, we have to be careful sometimes that we don't put intent into things and that we don't kind of put our adult ideas into things. I mean, obviously if you came home crying, it's a different story. And you know, there's another thing that just now occurs to me, which is I was far from the only Jewish kid in that class. He wasn't doing Heil Hitler to the other girls. He was saving it for me. <laughs> because you were special. You were yeah, a very special. special Jew. Yes. Right. But that is true, right? What's important to kids is that they're seen. And and sometimes at home, you're not seen. Now, I find it interesting that your mother gave you a diary. To this day, I, I'll never understand my mother because she was not introspective and she was very angry. She was really smart. She was really intelligent. She had a bunch of degrees. You know, she... She cut herself off at the knees. I think she wanted to um, have more of a career than she did. She ended up having a career when I graduated college. She had a career for a couple of years and was an entirely happier person for maybe two years. She's the person who taught me to write. She um, And I never wanted to be a writer. I never wanted anything to do with writing because she was really sort of shoving it down my throat without my permission. And I didn't like it. You know, I didn't, I don't know that she really was designing for me to be a writer. I think she was just proving that she knew about writing. 
during World War II, she was kind of a copywriter at Time Magazine, and she had a few of those um, kind of semi-important jobs when all the guys were at war. And then when they came home, she just did housework and um, had kids and was angry for the next 30 years. Was that the source of the anger, was not doing the other things in her life that gave her joy? That's all I could figure out. You know, you couldn't get an answer from her because uh, she didn't understand like we do now. She didn't like the idea of therapy and she never would have gone. She used to say, does that, how would anyone know about me? Am I not a distinct individual? You know, and I'd go, well, you know, you're kind of discounting the entire history of literature with that idea. (laughs) kind of throwing everything out with that she didn't like any of that sort of stuff she wasn't introspective so you'd say to her why are you so angry and she'd say how what do you mean why am i so angry look where you put that cup and then that would be the reason she was so angry is the cup was in the wrong place you know that was as far as you could get with her so that was as far as i got with her the other stuff i'm saying to you I'm making up, but I'm but based on who I turned out to be, where I had real big ideas about never wanting to be married, never wanting to have kids. I think I must have gotten that from her. Where did I get that? I didn't. I got it from somewhere. And she was, you know, she would tell you she was very happily married and et cetera. Obviously, you have you have tremendous. I mean, your whole life, your whole writing depends on tremendous introspection. Were there things that you learned about your about your mom and about your relationship with her by doing this book that you didn't know before? I was actually looking for the beginning of when um, when we really didn't get along because when I was little and I was kind of her clone, I think we got along a lot better. I'm pretty sure that you know she was very narcissistic, and I did a ton of reading because I went into therapy at some point in my 30s, and I learned my shrink gave me a lot of books to read about narcissism. You know, I was early to the narcissism game. I was way pre-Trump. When he showed up, I thought, wow, I've never seen such a a specifically developed case before. (laughs) But but I, I read maybe 25 books on narcissism. And it was really, my mom was really a narcissist. What caused that in her? I can't really say because you couldn't get an answer from her. So I don't know what happened when she was three that caused her to veer off in that direction, but she was cut off from some part of herself. With a kid and a, and a, a narcissistic parent, as long as you are part of the system, you're getting along just fine. You're, there's no conflict. But as soon as you start to differentiate yourself and try to be a separate person, well, that's a big problem. That seems undermining to the narcissistic parent. And as soon as I yeah. did that, that, I was in fights with her. And, and they never ended, by the way. She so, died, and they and I. She fought with me right up to her last breath. Now, if she sees this book, what does she say about the book? What? Oh, she, she would hate it. She would hate it. Yeah, yeah, she would truly hate it. She would say I got it all wrong, because she used to say stuff to me when I I would tell her something that I had just remembered, and she'd say, "No, that didn't happen." And I'd go, "Mom, I'm talking about a personal memory," and she'd say, "I don't happen to agree." You know, I go. <laughs> All right. Up for debate. All right, then. I don't agree with your feelings. Your feelings are wrong. That's one of the toughest things about a narcissist is anytime you have an original or different thought from them, it is offensive to them. Like it injures them. They, uh, they feel they've been taken down and destroyed. So it's an injury. Absolutely. That's yeah. what, so I, what I found in those books was that I, I didn't start really fighting with her until I was about 12. And then from that point on, by the time I had 14 or 15, it was an all-out war. And then by high school, it was 
irreparable. And then in college, I, I started seeing a shrink and asking her how to have conversations with my mother because I thought it was me. I thought I was screwing up by not being a supportive enough kid. Well, it's very confusing, narcissism. When you read about it, it's upside down and backwards to the training that you have. Yeah. Well, and because you don't get normal feedback from the parent, like the interaction between parent and child, when it's, when you're attuned, right. When it matches, when there's like a, an empathic connection, that's how kids actually make sense of the world. And when you have an adult back, that's like, no, that's not how it is. I don't remember it that way. What are you doing? You shouldn't be upset about that. It's incredibly disorganizing. It's really, really complicated. It's complicated and disorganizing. Yes. It can't be fixed either. You can just back away from it and just go, okay, well, we can talk later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there are there's certainly ways to, to handle a narcissist, but that's a really tough thing for a kid or certainly a teenager. I mean, at 12 or 13 is exactly developmentally the age where you should be pulling away from your mother and having your own ideas and figuring out what you want and, and what you want to wear and not wear. And it's, you know, it's a difficult stage when you're a parent. It also has no, uh, narcissism has no sense of humor in it. It doesn't have any no. rolling with the punches or sense of humor. So oh, no, anytime no. you do either anything that threatens it, it it's all over. Yeah. They just, they're afraid of being annihilated. It's really tough. And then, so hopefully you had other family members, aunts, uncles. No, somebody, I actually cousins. didn't. My father and my mother were like a, a two man tag team for the whole thing. <laughs> wow. They were joined at the hip with that stuff. And then they went after my brother and me, but my brother less because my brother, the way that a family organizes itself, as I'm sure you know, is, uh, or at least this is how many families organize themselves. One person takes a big chunk of the world, me, the oldest. And then my brother looked around, well, what isn't she dissolving yet? And took the other stuff. So we, my brother and I were not too similar. And I was fighting with my mother, fighting, fighting, fighting. So he was dissociating. She would, Mm -hmm. she would criticize him. He'd be off on another planet. He was from age five on. He was a sort of having OCD and he was, uh, the people were writing on his report cards. Teachers were writing, does not pay attention in class. Um, he ended up getting a PhD in archaeology and spent most of his time in the first century. <laughs> <laughs> a better century for him. Yeah, he, just, he yeah. went off and he he was. Um, they used to call him absent-minded professor, which was a thing they used to say a lot. Yeah, and we, he was really that. There's incredible amount of resilience in these kids and you and your brother. There's an incredible amount of resilience. What One of the things that I found really, really interesting and really relatable about the book is you say TV was your best friend. Yeah, I really, really relied on TV. I, you know, you're not supposed to say that in these books. You're supposed. To, I, I used to read a fair amount after a point, but I started out doing a lot more television watching than reading. And the other thing that I was mostly reading, Mad Magazine. That was, I was raised pretty much by Mad Magazine. I would have to say that that was my third parent. Classic, classic. Sorry, Ed, I'm just going to say what's so interesting about TV, because TV would have saved a lot of kids who were raised with parents like that in in that era. It wouldn't save you today. But you could watch TV shows back then and see reasonable parents. They weren't reasonable. They were living in some other weird world that has nothing to do with this one. I mean, those families on TV we were watching. I was actually only watching every show that had a cute boy on it. I mean, everybody (laughs) under a certain age, if if they were um, remotely attractive, I was there for them every week. 
Well, it's it's interesting. I want to come back to the TV point because you're because that's true. But if you compare like TV families on shows twenty or thirty years ago, let's say, to TV sh- series now, yeah, like now now the kids are in charge, right? The kids run the show. The adults are silly, ridiculous people who don't know what's going on. But you know, they used to complain about that back when also. They used to say, dad is just a bumbling idiot and yeah, and the kids yeah, are the yeah. only ones who know anything. They've uh, they've been complaining about that. It's just as, I guess, I get a better way to write entertainment than to have. It is. And kids find that funny too. It's just more, I feel like it's more extreme now. Mind you, kids don't even watch TV anymore. No, well, it's not TV, but it is TV. I mean, like the amount that everybody's taking in of everything is. Oh, huge. But they're watching snippets now, like little fast things right. and. What I feel like what I watch, and it's around the same time, Meryl, is what you're describing in the book of the time you grew up, there was a little bit more evidence of a human being on a TV. And I'm not talking about sitcoms necessarily, but I'm talking about talk shows and also live TV. Live TV was like, you're human, you're a human being, and you have all kinds of things going on with you. And there was something, there was like a kind of a warmth and a friendliness to like when you when you'd watch Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas or I always hated those guys. <laughs> I know I didn't like them, but I liked their guests. I didn't like them. Yeah, they were just so. I, you know, I didn't like Johnny Carson either, and I could kind of sort of tolerate Jack Parr a little bit, but not really. I didn't like really a damned one of them. And one reason was because they were, the women were just nobody to me. You know, they didn't really have anyone on that looked like I could be friends with them or that I wanted to be them or right. it was really, yeah. really ex- excluding women, especially Johnny Carson. My God. Did you watch female comedians? There weren't a lot of com- female comedians. There was a couple yeah. and they were, I didn't really like them particularly well because they were so making so much fun of themselves. They turned themselves into kind of quasi monsters. You know, I mean, right. I feel bad even saying this stuff because I met Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers and, uh, you know, God bless them for the amount of work they put in to having the careers that they wanted, et cetera. But I didn't relate to any of what they were using as material, you know, that Mm -hmm. Phyllis Diller made herself into that weird barky, I don't even know what it was supposed to be. And the same was kind of true of Joan. I, I didn't, that was never the comedy that I liked. I, the only com- woman I ever saw in comedy that I actually really related to from that period was Gracie Allen, who had a kind of a benign delightfulness to her. And right. everybody else that I liked was a guy. So the other thing is the interaction between a kid and radio or TV, where you would have to be active and you'd have to send, you'd do contests, radio contests and TV contests, where you send in something or you call in. Yeah, I was really preoccupied with that stuff. That was a thing that occur- only occurred to me when I was going through these diaries, looking for themes, like, well, what was going on here? I was play- spending a lot of time interacting with media. I feel grateful that I, w- I was raised not at this moment in time, because God only knows what I would be putting on YouTube and TikTok. And- it's crazy. It's scary. Yeah. And it's and shooting off my mouth and and putting up pictures and then getting a lot of flack back for it. You never really heard anything back about the stuff I was doing. I was entering a ton of contests and winning like be one of two hundred fourth prizes. You know, (laughs) and and that would be merch. You know, you get some merch from a company. Yeah. 
but there were, there was also local it. TV, which you know is not as big of a thing today. Where you were a kid and you were growing up watching your lo- these local characters who would host these cartoon shows or animated shows, and that yeah. was pretty interesting. Although those people you found out later were crazy people and you know not mentally well. I only, in perspective, realized they were just some guy with a show. You know, they were yeah. sort of magical, weird creatures when I was. Growing up, I was I was seeking their approval, and I I almost got a monkey um, coming to my birthday party. I I won runner up to that, and um, <laughs> and they read my letter on TV, and that I, I think I liked better than you know trying to figure out what to do with the monkey at my birthday party. Oh my God! That's well, you, you Jennifer, I want to tell you something that's in the book that I think you sure. you would love. She has this thing where you say something really interesting. It's that. If more parents would pay attention to their childhood diaries, they would be more effective parents. I thought that was crap. <laughs> Did you write? I that wrote it, but I know, but I made fun of it in the book. I mean, I wrote it at the time, but I thought it was—I th- I, I thought it was pandering to myself, and I couldn't figure out why I wrote that. I just—I I just, it was like me entering a Miss America pageant or something. It is. Well, I think it's not, I'll tell you why it's not crap because we really, we, first of all, you have to remember as a parent and your mom is a good example of this. Like you just, you throw out one sentence to your kid and you can devastate them. You don't realize when you say things to kids, how much weight they actually hold, especially if you say it multiple times. Yeah. Well, that's definitely true. That's true. But if you kind of recognize at different developmental stages where kids are at, and change your expectations. But I think that'd be a great exercise to, I'm going to go pull mine out. I'm going to go look at my childhood diary. No, because you forget, right? How you look at the world through a child's eyes and how scared they get and how they hang on your word. Even the, even a teacher, teachers, you know, there's lots of wonderful teachers out there, but they can throw out one sentence that could make a kid decide that's it. I'm not smart. Yeah, Words have weight. And, and I'll tell you, Meryl, what I'm struck by, it's so interesting because you had this mother who kind of invalidated everything, but you, it is so clear how, how clearly you see the world and how strongly you see things. Like you just know, I don't know. There's just been a few times in the interview where you just say it. I love that. Like, I just think that came from somewhere and in a we in a weird way. And this is really what we have to do sometimes when we look back at our childhood, sometimes the crappy stuff and the bad stuff, although we don't wish it on anyone, actually does help contribute to the best in us, if that makes sense. You know, I I think that, um, I yeah, I don't know that if that's true or not true. It seems to me that, the thi- that a parent who doesn't just give their kids some latitude and just go, hey, nice job, and who bothers to be critical of everything the kid does all the time is doing more harm than good. That there's really no reason to be consuming that much continuous criticism of everything. No, 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 for sure. And that's devastating. And that actually does change the architecture of the brain that, it, that, you know, helps kids see how they see themselves and they'll see themselves through that lens forever. Well, I had a game that I played um, because of her, uh, when I was working in television in New York, um, she, my parents came to visit in New York and they were, because of all the years of having her complain about everything about me, I thought, okay, I'm going to play a game here. I'm going to see if I can have at least one moment of my life where I'm beyond criticism because a lot of it was physical. 
So I I got a haircut and I bought some new clothes and I got new everything and I I to the extent that I can't even tell you what specific things I did but I did I got new everything and I just and and she came up I first I walked around from office to office to office to office where I was working and I said to everyone in my office take a look at me something's wrong with me tell me what it is <laughs> <laughs> and nobody came up with anything. So I said, okay, I, I got it locked. I don't think there's anything that she's going to be able to come up with. And she walked in. It didn't take her 30 seconds to find that I had a little plastic tag on my purse where I had pulled up um, a price off, but I had forgotten to cut the little plastic tag. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's mm. unbelievable. As I remember saying to her, boy, you're good. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. You know what, though? Like, to a narcissist and to someone like She's that, good. she has to find that. Yeah. She would have had to find that or she would have been annihilated because it's it's just the way that they think. It's terrible. It's actually terrible. And I certainly didn't mean to suggest that, oh, you know, be happy, you know, be glad your mother. But the truth is, sometimes we can find resilience we didn't know we had. Yeah, I'm very resilient. I'm, I am. I do have that. So I got that from somewhere, too. So, um yeah, incredibly resilient. You and your brother too. Your brother yeah. figured something out. He figured something out, you know, and these kids are very resilient for what they're dealing with. No, because I'm thinking, you know, there's another way to go with this. And one way to go is to really, you know, really be, really be, be very uh, bad to yourself. Be very- well, I used to do a bunch of that. I hate myself. I hate myself. I hate myself stuff till I got a little older and just went, oh, screw that. I love that. That's the resilience though. Those are emotional shock absorbers right there. But there's a lot of people who have a parent like that and they weren't able to do that. I don't want them to feel badly about themselves. It, it really does get in your head. It literally changes the wiring in your brain. E even just the simple step of saying, wait a minute, that's a program. That's a program that came from someone who couldn't see things any other way, who was clearly probably in a lot of pain herself, although she thought it was just the coffee cup. Right. I, well, that's what I figure. She was in a lot of pain, but I never did figure out what the source of that pain was. I, so I've imagined that it was that she wanted to be a career person because she didn't seem to be getting any joy out of raising children. Right. And even if it was that, she doesn't sound like the kind of person to me that would have even known that herself. Like it wouldn't, I don't think she made that. Well, I used to try at some point when I was an adult. Um, she died when I was in my forties. And I, at some point in my thirties, I used to try to encourage her to be a writer. And I was not able to really do that either because she's not going to take orders from me. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. And, and it's all, but I hear such a strength in you that, that is such a strong sense of really who, who you are. And I don't know if that's come about through therapy or if that's just who you are. Therapy really um, made, took it out away from me that I was, um, uh, that I before I went it to therapy, really I felt like it was my fault that I was having those fights with my mother. And also I was having those same kind of fights with boyfriends. And I thought, okay, it's no accident that I'm having those fights with my mother and with these boyfriends. Therefore, I have to learn how to curb whatever this is I'm doing. And it was therapy that said, um, no, you're not doing anything. They're the same. You're dating people like your mother. Yeah. And that, that completely blew my mind for at the time. People do that all the time. We And it, it's basically, you have these life patterns, right? Yeah. That you're, right? And then you, what you do is you literally attract friends, 
you know, partners. Well, you've learned skills about how to deal with a certain kind of vitriolic person. So when you see it again, you go, oh, good place for my skills. Even deeper than that, there's there's a part of us that wants to get it right, that wants to make it have a moment where she goes, oh my God, you know, you're so, how did I not notice how wonderful you are? It, it was never going to happen, but we keep hoping that we can achieve that by repeating the same pattern. Yeah. And it's not until you realize I'm not, that's, I don't need to do that. I'm not going to be able to fix that primal wound. It's not, it's not going to happen, but I don't have to let it define the rest of my life. Yeah, I had a big moment at a party one time where there was a guy that I was flirting with. And then at some point, because I'd already been doing all this narcissism reading, he started unloading on me a certain kind of dialectic that I realized I was supposed to solve his problems for him. And I remember saying to him, well, you're a smart guy, you'll figure it out. And I thought, well, wow, that's the first time I've ever said that to anybody. <laughs> Where I didn't go, you know what we can do? No, here's what we'll do. We'll fix it. I know. I didn't try to set, take over his life and fix it for him. Yeah, it was a, that was a really big moment. There is a time when you can actually say that to yourself, but you have to have the awareness and you have to say, wait a minute, let me observe something. Let me be aware of something that's going on. You're not going into everything completely unconsciously. And sometimes people don't do that. Sometimes people don't do that. Oftentimes people don't do that. Do you miss the excitement of doing live TV? Because you did the morning show with Letterman and you were doing it live at one point, right? It was a live show. Yeah, some stuff I miss. I miss having a creative outlet, but I would just as soon it be... I would rather it be a, a format kind of like um, Saturday Night Live or um, Weekend Update or or John Oliver or something like that. With the show I was working on, there was so much tension. I don't miss it because the host was very very unhappy with almost everything you gave him. And, and did that did that change after we after no, you went to? No, I, um, I I've told people this and nobody believes me, but uh, he he's just very critical of himself and of everything. And um, it's just the way that he processes everything. And so what I missed, what people who say to me, well, what about how, wasn't it fun being on a successful show? And I never knew we were a successful show. <laughs> I thought we were failing. So I, I, uh, I made a lot of friends there, you know, that I, I'm still in touch with. I would redo that scenario some other way. But did you know, but you knew when you wrote something that was funny, that was creative and that would work well, you know, no. you knew it was good, right? Well, no, not if somebody tells you it's not good. Yeah, that's the culture of where you work. But you believe it's comedy, you know, you, you have a brilliant comedy mind. You have a well, comedy no, mind. That's that this not is how funny. my comedy mind works. This is, I guess, a hangover from my mother. But uh, I never really, I, what I know how to do is put the bullets in the gun and aim. And I don't really have any idea if I'm hitting a target. So what I know how to do is try as hard as I possibly can. And then after that, I release it. I don't ever know whether or not it's succeeding or failing. And I, I, get, and I understand that I'm never going to know that. I never know until people later have said to me, that was so funny. I just know that I mean for it to be funny. And I know how to keep putting the bullets in the chamber and I, I know even how to keep pulling the trigger, but I don't know if I'm hitting the target. But in the book, in the book, were there things that you laughed your head off at? Were there things that you said, this is really funny? This is really funny to me. Uh, see, I don't operate quite the way that you are describing it. I, everything I do, I go toward because I'm hoping it's funny. 
And I know I am a kind of person, and this is, I used to experience this a lot when I used to try to do stand-up. I'm the kind of person who finds a lot of stuff funny, and some of the stuff I find funny, everybody thinks is funny, and some of the stuff I find funny, only I find funny. I'm somebody that can be in a theater and I'm the only person laughing. And I accept that about myself. I just find what I find funny. And I never know whether I'm looking at the thing that only I find funny. But I love that, though. You're just going for it. That's all I know. It's the one thing I know. And it's the thing that gives me pleasure. So I don't really, I, I try really hard not to evaluate whether it's working or not, because I don't know. So I never really write a thing and go, hey, nice job. <laughs> I write a thing <laughs> and then I just that. go, um, this is as good as I can do this. And I do a ton of rewriting. And sometimes I have to stop myself from rewriting because I do so much rewriting that in one case, I, um, I put it back into the form, the original form. So, and that's another thing I learned as in getting older, I learned that, you know, there's not that many ways that you can, in fact, do a rewrite. You can do it a few ways, but you're not going to really reinvent it entirely if it's mostly formed. So you can start over again entirely and go some whole other way, but, but at some point you have to go pencils down. And you know when to do that. No, you don't know when to do it. That's why I like deadlines, but, um, I, I've always liked deadlines. I generally work backwards from deadlines. In this book, in, in We Saw Scenery, you bring in the hippocampus. Yeah. And so you have a little bit of you had a little a little bit of neuroscience in there of the brain. Was that interesting to you? Is the, is the brain something that you think a lot about? Or you do uh, every time I see something to read about that, I read about it. Uh, the, for me, a life defining, life changing moment was when I learned that your frontal lobe is not fully connected till you're 28 or mm-hmm. 29 which totally explains everybody's 20s. You know, it's just mm. you just don't have a fully functioning brain. Yeah. That's why you are that crazy person when you're in your early 20s is you just actually are a person without real comprehension of consequences. Right. That's true. Yeah, that's why your parents prior to that are actually your substitute frontal lobe pretty much. And that's why when you have a yeah. parent that's different <laughs> as your mother was, you're going to have that, that frontal lobe, you know, the ability of that brain to guide you properly and help you take perspective and, and motivate you is going to be, you know, off. Well, I think you did a, an amazing job given a very difficult mom, really. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. she, you know, that I've, in some ways she is really difficult. In other ways, you know, she wasn't beating me and we had food and, you know. The basics were there. Ed, I'm so sorry. I have a I have a client three who's in a lot of pain. <laughs> I'm going to let you jump off. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Take care, Jennifer. I love this book. And by the way, I gave it to my gave it to my daughter because she's 16 and she's really a, she's a writer. And I, I just wanted to show her, you know, the kinds of things that are that are possible that you can work with different different parts of yourself and bring it all together. And then I was also thinking when I was writing it that a certain level of um, 14, 15, 16-year-old who's torturing herself, what could I was doing an immense amount of self-torture in those years, which I had forgotten about, and that a kid could look at that and say, well, she was just as miserable as I am, and she went on to write a book. So I guess that you move through that. 
I love that that part of it, especially because you see that oh, there are all these different things going on. I can, you know, I can use humor, I can use comedy, I can have drawings, I can. Do, there's all kinds of things that I can do with some pretty serious stuff and stuff that you know is some stuff is painful. And there are ways to, there are lots of different angles that you can approach it from. So that's what I love. See, I love a book where you have all, all of a sudden in your own personal diary, you have Doris Kearns Goodwin reflecting. Yeah. <laughs> now she's coming in to reflect. See, that to me is really funny, you know? And so I like that you playing with that, but then you've got the hippo and the hippocampus and the hippocampus is talking to you. You're trying to get some answers from, from him, but he's not very helpful. Well, that was me after I had gone through the diaries and figured out what I was going to use. And then I wanted to, I stopped at that point doing drawings and I just started doing writing because I need, I knew I needed a story arc and I needed to, um, I needed to stop doing drawings and start making sure that the book content read without drawings. And then I went back and finished your drawings. What kind of a therapy patient are you? Well, how are you in therapy? What do you do? Are you funny in therapy? Are you emotional in therapy? I don't go anymore. I, cause my parents are dead and um, I only had one set of them. <laughs> so I don't have, you know, I, I was yeah. sincere. I think. And sometimes I would make jokes. She didn't have much of a sense of humor. So that yeah. was sort of pointless. You know, I, that, I realized early on that wasn't going to be an effective way to communicate mm. with her. So I didn't try. And I didn't, I, I also have a thing where if somebody tells me to do something like she'd say, well, I think what you could do with, I, I would immediately go, no, no, I don't really, I don't want to do that. And then I would go home and do it. <laughs> so I I have a, a contrarian streak that uh, was hard to control. Is there stuff that you find particularly funny now? Do you watch things? Are you are you a, a big comedy fan, or are you too busy create creating stuff? No, I love comedy. Yeah, I, but I I'm real specific about comedy. I'm a big comedy snob. I either like it or don't like it, and I don't find it all equally funny. If it hits my sweet spot, I love it so much. And if it doesn't, I give it thirty seconds and I turn it off. Is do you watch? Do you watch stand up or do you watch uh, both? Yeah, scripted. I can tell early on whether someone's operating in my my sweet spot in stand up, and if they are, yeah, I love that. I love stand up. I love it in all forms, really. Mm. I, I I've been enjoying right now. I'm watching. Um, I would this kind of funny. It's not like uproariously funny, but I'm watching Call My Agent, a French show. Oh, I like it a lot. I like it a lot. I, I like it for the characters. I don't particularly think it's, I don't think it's hysterically funny, but I think, I think the characters are people you want to follow. Yeah, no, they're terrific. They're all really, really good. Yeah. yeah that's a good one. Yeah. I like, I do like that one. I, I find that some of the shows like they're, they're great character studies. Like Last, Tan Last Tango in Halifax is a good one, and Rita is a good one. Stuff that comes from Denmark I find very interesting. I've Where never even heard of either of those two. Oh, I, I like oh, they're good. I like the people, too, because it's fascinating. Those show yeah, they're shows in cultures where there's a different level of humanity and decency, and it's just very interesting to watch people, the wow. way people treat each other. Are those Netflix, Rita? and Rita's Netflix. It's a, it's a, it's a, Den, a Danish show. And Last Tango in Halifax is from, I want to say, New South Wales or Australia. Huh. But I highly recommend those shows. They're fantastic. 
And there's some coming out of New Zealand that are really good too. That show, the the weird vampire one, I'm forgetting what it's called now. What, what we do in the dark. That's what we do funny. in the dark. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of good shows. I want to just watch something with uh, my daughter that I thought was great, and it's a it's an older movie. It's called Kind of a Funny Story, and it's really interesting. It's about a kid who spends uh, five days in a mental hospital. Huh. And and it's Zach Galifianakis is in it, and it's very interesting. It's not new, uh, but it, highly recommend it. Wildly creative, probably something you'd like. I think probably something you'd like. Hmm. I'm so glad we talked because uh, we really haven't talked before, and now we have. And now now that we have, we'll get to do it again. Okay, great. Well, thank you for having me as a guest. It's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. You can subscribe. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to makelightmedia.com. Make light, one word, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T, media.com. Thank you, Meryl. And we will talk again. And the book is called We Saw Scenery. You can get it on Amazon. I'm sure you can get it at a lot of different places. I highly, highly recommend it. Do not miss it. And if you have a teenager, get this book for them, especially. And it'll be good for you, too. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari. We will see you next time. Bye.